Chapter Four of the Mystery of Mary by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Dunham listened as long as his ear could catch the sound. Then a strange desolation settled down upon him. How was it that a few short hours ago he had known nothing, cared nothing about this stranger? And now her going had left things blank enough. It was foolish, of course, just highly wrought nerves over this most extraordinary occurrence. Life had heretofore run in such smooth conventional grooves as to have been almost prosaic, and now to be suddenly plunged into romance and mystery unbalanced him for the time. Tomorrow, probably, he would again be able to look sane living in the face, and perhaps call himself a fool for his most unusual interest in this chance acquaintance. But just at this moment when he had parted from her, when the memory of her lovely face and pure eyes lingered with him, when her bravery and fear were both so fresh in his mind, and the very sound of her music was still in his brain, he simply could not, without a pang, turn back again to life which contained no solution of her mystery, no hope of another vision of her face. The little station behind him was closed, though a light over the desk shone brightly through its front window, and the telegraph sounder was clicking busily. The operator had gone over the hill with an important telegram, leaving the station door locked. The platform was windy and cheerless, with a view of a murky swamp, and the sound of deep-throated inhabitants croaking out a late fall concert. A rusty-throated cricket in a crack of the platform wailed a plaintive note now and then, and off beyond the swamp in the edge of the wood a screech-owl hooted. Turning impatiently from the darkness, Dunham sought the bright window, in front of which lay a newspaper. He could read the large headlines of a column, no more, for the paper was upside down, and a bunch of bill-heads lay partly across it. It read, Mysterious Disappearance of Young and Pretty Woman. His heart stood still, and then went thudding on in dull, horrid blows. Vainly he tried to read further. He followed every visible word of that paper to discover its date and origin, but those miserable bill-heads frustrated his effort. He felt like dashing his hand through the glass, but reflected that the act might result in his being locked up in some miserable country jail. He tried the window and gave the door another vicious shake, but all to no purpose. Finally he turned on his heel and walked up and down for an hour, tramping the length of the shaky platform, back and forth, till the train rumbled up. As he took his seat in the car, he saw the belated agent come running up the platform with a lighted lantern on his arm and a package of letters, which he handed to the brakeman, but there was not time to beg the newspaper from him. Dunham's indignant mind continued to dwell upon the headlines, to the annoying accompaniment of screech-owl and frog and cricket. He resented the adjective, pretty. Why should any reporter dare to apply that word to a sweet and lovely woman? It seemed so superficial, so belittling, and, but then, of course, this headline did not apply to his new friend. It was some other poor creature, someone to whom perhaps the word pretty really applied, 
someone who was not really beautiful, only pretty. At the first stop a man in front got out, leaving a newspaper in the seat. With eager hands Dunham leaned forward and grasped it, searching its columns in vain for the tantalizing headlines. But there were others equally arrestive. This paper announced the mysterious disappearance of a young actress who was suspected of poisoning her husband. When seen last, she was boarding a train en route to Washington. She had not arrived there, however, so far as could be discovered. It was supposed that she was lingering in the vicinity of Philadelphia or Baltimore. There were added a few incriminating details concerning her relationship with her dead husband, and a brief sketch of her sensational life. The paragraph closed with the statement that she was an accomplished musician. The young man frowned, and opening his window, flung the scandalous sheet to the breeze. He determined to forget what he had read, yet the lines kept coming before his eyes. When he reached the city he went to the newsstand in the station, where was an agent who knew him, and procured a copy of every paper on sale. Then, instead of hurrying home, he found a seat in a secluded corner and proceeded to examine his purchases. In large letters on the front page of a New York paper blazed, House robbed of jewels worth $10,000 by beautiful young adventuress masquerading as a parlor-maid. He ran his eye down the column and gathered that she was still at large, though the entire police force of New York was on her track. He shivered at the thought, and began to feel sympathy for all wrongdoers and truants from the law. It was horrible to have detectives out everywhere watching for beautiful young women, just when this one in whom his interest centered was trying to escape from something. He turned to another paper, only to be met by the words, Escape of Fair Lunatic, and underneath, Prison walls could not confine Miss Nancy Lee, who last week threw a lighted lamp at her mother, setting fire to the house, and then attempted suicide. The young woman seems to have recovered her senses, and professes to know nothing of what happened, but the physicians say she is liable to another attack of insanity, and deem it safe to keep her confined. She escaped during the night, leaving no clue as to her whereabouts. How she managed to get open the window through which she left the asylum is still a mystery. In disgust he flung the paper from him and took up another. Foul play suspected. Beautiful young heiress missing. His soul turned sick within him. He looked up and saw a little procession of late revelers rushing out to the last suburban train, the girls leaving a trail of orris perfume and a vision of dainty opera cloaks. One of the men was a city friend of his. Dunham half envied him his unperturbed mind. To be sure, he would not get back to the city till three in the morning, but he would have no visions of robberies and fair lunatics and hard-pressed maidens unjustly pursued to mar his rest. Dunham buttoned his coat and turned up his collar as he started out into the street, for the night had turned cold and his nerves made him chilly. As he walked the blood began to race more healthily in his veins, and the horrors of the evening papers were dispelled. In their place came pleasant memories of the evening at Mrs. Bowman's, of the music and of their ride and talk together. 
In his heart a hope began to rise that her dark days would pass, and that he might find her again and know her better. His brief night's sleep was cut short by a sharp knock at his door the next morning. He awoke with a confused idea of being on a sleeping car, and wondered if he had plenty of time to dress, but his sister's voice quickly dispelled the illusion. "'Tryon, aren't you almost ready to come down to breakfast? Do hurry, please. I've something awfully important to consult you about.' His sister's tone told him there was need for haste if he would keep in her good graces, so he made a hurried toilet and went down to find his household in a state of subdued excitement. "'I'm just as worried as I can be,' declared his mother. "'I want to consult you, Tryon. I have put such implicit confidence in Nora, and I cannot bear to accuse her unjustly. But I have missed a number of little things lately.' There was my gold-link bag. Mother, you know you said you were sure you left that at the Century Club. Don't interrupt, Cornelia. Of course it is possible I left it at the club rooms, but I begin to think now I didn't have it with me at all. Then there is my opal ring. To be sure, it isn't worth a great deal, but one who will take little things will take large ones. What's the matter, Mother? "'Nora been appropriating property not her own?' "'I'm very much afraid she has, Tryon. "'What would you do about it? "'It is so unpleasant to charge a person with stealing. "'It is such a vulgar thing to steal. "'Somehow I thought Nora was more refined.' "'Why, I suppose there's nothing to do but just charge her with it, is there? "'Are you quite sure it is gone? "'What is it, anyway? "'A ring, did you say?' "'No, it's a hat,' said Cornelia shortly. "'A sixty-dollar hat. "'I wish I'd kept it now, and then she wouldn't have dared. "'It had two beautiful willow ostrich plumes on it, "'but Mother didn't think it was becoming. "'She wanted some color about it instead of all black. "'I left it in my room and charged Nora to see that the man got it when he called, "'and now the man comes and says he wants the hat, and it is gone.' Nora insists that when she last saw it, it was in my room. But, of course, that's absurd, for there was nobody else to take it but Thompson, and he's been in the family for so long. "'Nonsense!' said her brother sharply, dropping his fruit knife in his plate with a rattle that made the young woman jump. "'Cornelia, I'm ashamed of you, thinking that poor innocent girl has stolen your hat. Why, she wouldn't steal a pin, I am sure.' You can tell she's honest by looking into her eyes. Girls with blue eyes like that don't lie and steal. Really? Cornelia remarked haughtily. You seem to know a great deal about her eyes. You may feel differently when I find the hat in her possession. Cornelia, interrupted Tryon, quite beside himself, don't think of such a thing as speaking to that poor girl about that hat. I know she hasn't stolen it. The hat will probably be found, and then how will you feel? But I tell you the hat cannot be found, said the exasperated sister, and I shall just have to pay for a hat that I can never wear. Mother, I appeal to you, said the son earnestly. Don't allow Cornelia to speak of the hat to the girl. 
I wouldn't have such an injustice done in our house. The hat will turn up soon if you just go about the matter calmly. You'll find it quite naturally and unexpectedly, perhaps. Anyway, if you don't, I'll pay for the hat, rather than have the girl suspected. But Tryon, protested his mother, if she isn't honest, you know we wouldn't want her about. Honest, mother? She's as honest as the day is long. I am certain of that. The mother rose reluctantly. Well, we might let it go another day, she consented. Then, looking up at the sky, she added, I wonder if it is going to rain. I have a reciprocity meeting on for today, and I'm a delegate to some little unheard-of place. It usually does rain when one goes into the country, I've noticed. She went into the hall, and presently returned with a distressed look upon her face. "'Tryon, I'm afraid you're wrong,' she said. "'Now my raincoat is missing. My new raincoat. I hung it up in the hall closet with my own hands after it came from the store. I really think something ought to be done.' "'There! I hope you see,' said Cornelia severely. "'I think it's high time something was done.' I shall phone for a detective at once. Cornelia, you'll do nothing of the kind, her brother protested, now thoroughly aroused. I'll agree to pay for the hat and the raincoat if they are not forthcoming before a fortnight passes, but you simply shall not ruin that poor girl's reputation. I insist, mother, that you put a stop to such rash proceedings. I'll make myself personally responsible for that girl's honesty. "'Well, of course, Tryon, if you wish it,' said his mother, with anxious hesitation. "'I certainly do wish it, mother. I shall take it as personal if anything is done in this matter without consulting me. Remember, Cornelia, I will not have any trifling. A girl's reputation is certainly worth more than several hats and raincoats, and I know she has not taken them.' He walked from the dining-room and from the house in angry dignity to the astonishment of his mother and sister, to whom he was usually courtesy itself. Consulting him about household matters was as a rule merely a form, for he almost never interfered. The two women looked at each other in startled bewilderment. "'Mother,' said Cornelia, "'you don't suppose he can have fallen in love with Nora, do you? Why, she's Irish and freckled.' "'and Tryon has always been so fastidious.' "'Cornelia, how dare you suggest such a thing? "'Tryon is a Dunham. "'Whatever else a Dunham may or may not do, "'he never does anything low or unrefined.' "'The small, prim, stylish mother "'looked quite regal in her aristocratic rage. "'But, mother, one reads such dreadful things "'in the papers now.' Of course, Tryon would never marry anyone like that, but... Cornelia! Her mother's voice had almost reached a patrician scream. I forbid you to mention the subject again. I cannot think where you learn to voice such thoughts. Well, my goodness, mother, I don't mean anything. Only I do wish I had my hat. I always did like all black. I can't imagine what ails try if it isn't that. 
Tryon Dunham took his way to his office much perturbed in mind. Perplexities seemed to be thickening about him. With the dawn of the morning had come that sterner common sense which told him he was a fool for having taken up with a strange young woman on the street, who was so evidently flying from justice. He had deceived not only his intimate friends by palming her off as a fit companion for them, but his mother and sister. He had practically stolen their garments, and had squandered more than fifty dollars of his own money. And what had he to show for all this? The memory of a sweet face, the lingering beauty of the name Mary when she bade him good-bye, and a diamond ring. The cool morning light presented the view that the ring was probably valueless and that he was a fool. Ah, the ring! A sudden warm thrill shot through him, and his hand searched his vest pocket, where he had hastily put the jewel before leaving his room. That was something tangible. He could at least know what it was worth, and so make sure once for all whether he had been deceived. No, that would not be fair either, for her father might have made her think it was valuable, or he might even have been taken in himself if he were not a judge of jewels. Dunham examined it as he walked down the street, too perplexed with his own tumultuous thoughts to remember his usual trolley. He slipped the ring on his finger and let it catch the morning sunlight, now shining broad and clear in spite of the hovering rain-clouds in the distance. And gloriously did the sun illumine the diamond, burrowing into the great depths of its clear white heart, and causing it to break into a million fires of glory, flashing and glancing until it fairly dazzled him. The stone seemed to be of unusual beauty and purity, but he would step into the diamond shop as he passed and make sure. He had a friend there who could tell him all about it. His step quickened, and he covered the distance in a short time. After the morning greeting, he handed over his ring. "'This belongs to a friend of mine,' he said, trying to look unconcerned. "'I should like to know if the stone is genuine, and about what it is worth.' His friend took the ring and retired behind a curious little instrument for the eye, presently emerging with a respectful look upon his face. "'Your friend is fortunate to have such a beautiful stone.' It is unusually clear and white and exquisitely cut. I should say it was worth at least. He paused and then named a sum which startled Dunham, even accustomed as he was to counting values in high figures. He took the jewel back with a kind of awe. Where had his mysterious lady acquired this wondrous bauble which she had tossed to him for a trifle? In a tumult of feeling he went on to his office more perplexed than ever. Suspicions of all sorts crowded thickly into his mind, but for every thought that shadowed the fair reputation of the lady, there came into his mind her clear eyes and cast out all doubts. Finally, after a bad hour of trying to work, he slipped the ring on his little finger, determined to wear it, and thus proved to himself his belief in her at least until he had absolute proof against her. Then he took up his hat and went out, deciding to accept Judge Blackwell's invitation to visit his office. He found a cordial reception, and the judge talked business in a most satisfactory manner. His proposals bade fair to bring about some of the dearest wishes of the young man's heart, 
and yet as he left the building he was thinking more about the mysterious stranger who had disappeared from the judge's office the day before than about the wonderful good luck that had come to him in a business way. They had not talked much about her. The judge had brought out her hat, a beautiful velvet one with exquisite plumes, her gloves, a costly leather purse, and a fine hem-stitched handkerchief, and as he put them sadly away on a closet shelf, he said no trace of her had as yet been found. On his way toward his own office, Tryon Dunham pondered the remarkable coincidence which had made him the possessor of two parts of the same mystery, for he had no doubt that the hat belonged to the young woman who had claimed his help the evening before. Meantime, the girl who was speeding along toward Chicago had not forgotten him. She could not if she would, for all about her were reminders of him. The conductor took charge of her ticket, telling her in his gruff, kind way what time they would arrive in the city. The porter was solicitous about her comfort. The newsboy brought the latest magazines and a box of chocolates and laid them at her shrine with a smile of admiration and the words, The gentleman sent them. The suitcase lay on the seat opposite, the reflection of her face in the window glass, as she gazed into the inky darkness outside, was crowned by the hat he had provided, and when she moved, the silken rustle of the raincoat reminded her of his kindness and forethought. She put her head back and closed her eyes, and for just an instant let her weary, overwrought mind think what it would mean if the man from whom she was fleeing had been such as this one seemed to be. By and by she opened the suitcase, half doubtfully, feeling that she was almost intruding upon another's possessions. There was a dress suit and a change of fine linen, handkerchiefs, neckties, a pair of gloves, a soft black felt negligee hat folded, a large black silk muffler, a bathrobe, and the usual silver-mounted brushes, combs, and other toilet articles. She looked them over in a business-like way, trying to see how much she could make use of them. Removing her hat, she covered it with the silk muffler to protect it from dust. Then she took off her dress and wrapped herself in the soft bathrobe, wondering as she did so at her willingness to put on a stranger's garments. Somehow, in her brief acquaintance with this man, he had impressed her with his own pleasant fastidiousness, so that there was a kind of pleasure in using his things, as if they had been those of a valued friend. She touched the electric button that controlled the lights in the little apartment, and lay down in the darkness to think out her problem of the new life that lay before her. End of chapter 4